Hey, what's your work setup look like right now? Chances are, if you're a white-collar worker like me, things look different than they used to pre-pandemic. It's been just over two years now since our work lives were turned upside down by COVID-19. But can I be honest with you? I may never have been more productive in my life. I no longer have to commute to and from work. I don't have to meal prep tomorrow's lunch the night before. And laundry no longer has to be something that cannibalizes my Sundays. And while my pandemic belly may disagree with me as I ignore its pleas for a stupid little walk, lying down pantsless in bed might actually be my most ergonomic working position. I mean, it's not perfect. For instance, at some point in every season of City Space, my partner literally counts down the number of episodes we have left to record. And who can blame her? Having to be totally silent for hour-long stretches at random points during the week, like right now, is hardly ideal, and less so if you live in a small condo. Of course, there's a huge number of people who can't work from home. But for the many of us who can, we might actually prefer the work-life balance that a hybrid model can bring. And Mark Rose, the head of the global commercial real estate services company Avis & Young, recently told The Globe that it'll be five years before we can see anything close to a full return to the office. So unless you're Elon Musk, requiring people to work 40 hours a week in an office might increasingly be a thing of the past. But if a lot of workers permanently go remote, that's going to have a huge effect on how cities work moving forward. After all, cities were built around the very idea of work and the physical space needed for it. The cores are where the offices are, with businesses that tend to the workday crowd. And especially in recent decades, housing was built to be relatively close by. And perhaps most importantly, cities rely on our tax money to provide services and contribute to infrastructure. And a lot of that comes from commercial real estate. So what's going to happen to all that office space in our downtowns? and all the things that rely on that. What's gonna to happen to our homes when a significant percentage of the office gets downloaded into where we actually live? Some have suggested that we could turn some of this new office space into housing, but just how realistic is that, really? Welcome back to City Space. I'm Adrian Lee. If you're like me, and you walked around your city during the early part of the pandemic, you probably noticed it was a bit of a ghost town. A study from 2020 bore that out. It found that foot traffic on various Canadian main streets fell between 35 and 70% year over year. And while we collectively navigate what the future of office attendance can look like, the knock-on effects of those decisions have an effect on the surrounding ecosystems that are built to support office life. You've got buildings that used to house thousands of individuals who were coming in. They were going to get their coffee. They were having their haircut. They were maybe going to the dentist. They were meeting friends after work. And so the office was kind of the anchor that brought people to downtown. But of course, throughout the day in those areas, because people were anchored to those institutions and were, were going out and looking for things to do during work and after work and to really also just meet their essential needs. Jennifer Barrett is a senior planner with the Canadian Urban Institute. For her and her colleagues, COVID-19 has presented this profound and potentially radical opportunity to rethink and remake what our downtown cores could look like. 
With researchers, urbanists, and downtown city builders from across the country, the Institute compiled a report called The Case for the Core. And the way they see it, we all sit at a three-pronged fork in the road. The first road? People leave town. So post-COVID, we continue to see people leave the city seeking um, more space, different housing types, maybe a different lifestyle. And that really creates a downtown that gets hollowed out and suffers some disinvestment. According to Jennifer, digitization and the pandemic was a one-two punch that undid decades of making our downtowns the economic hubs of our cities. Thanks to a little something called the World Wide Web, we don't have to be in the office all the time anymore. And since March 2020, we basically couldn't be. So we all accidentally found ourselves in a global experiment. Can we work remotely and remain productive? The answer in many industries seemed like, well, yes. All of a sudden, the price tags that come with living in the big city stop seeming worth it. Folks decamped for the suburbs or that little cottage they've always dreamed of living in full time. Because as long as there's a strong Wi-Fi connection, why not? So in this scenario, we've got fewer people living in cities and a decline in foot traffic. As the rise of e-commerce hits the retail, restaurants, tourism, and arts and culture sectors of our downtowns, too. A decaying downtown might also inspire housing developers to build more where people actually are, in those peripheral and suburban neighborhoods. It would be a rough hit on municipal governments, who count on all that tax money that commercial real estate generates. And public transit might take a hit, too, since it won't need to move all those commuters every day. But on the other hand, maybe traffic congestion eases up. Maybe some light manufacturing or more creative industries move into the core because now they can take advantage of spaces that have lowered their rent. So it may be a very different downtown than we're used to, but, you know, some potential bright spots, too. Okay, how about road number two? The second scenario is one in which we continue to see an escalation of what was happening pre-pandemic, which is housing prices become more expensive, commercial spaces become more expensive, and so there's a small population that can inhabit and use those spaces. It's the Roaring Twenties, baby! We've been piling up those fat stacks while we sat at home with nothing else to do, which means we're ready to spend. So much like the economic crisis of 2008, Governments work hard to give financial markets a boost. So it's little wonder that those in charge have pushed for a return to pre-pandemic normal. But in the case for returning to how things were, say goodbye to all the things we apparently learned during this pandemic. For instance, better social service supports, increased income supports, or more affordable housing, or new kinds of public investments in our cities. They're not surefire bets on an immediate return to economic boom time, so who's got time for all that? But getting your butt back to the office? Well, that's a reliable recipe for downtown revivals. And for so many business leaders and managers, that's a return to that sweet, sweet productivity they can see with their own eyes. So in this scenario, companies will pull out all the stops to get you back, like bonuses for spending time in the office, or cool perks like all the organic snacks you can eat. Of course, there's still a pandemic though, so you know businesses seeking your dollars We'll make sure to reassure you that safety and user experience is their main concern. Sure, it gives Elite City from the Hunger Games vibes, but if you're on the right side, you're about to cash in. So, uh, this is also maybe not ideal. But 
There's door number three. And so the third scenario, which we outlined in the report, which is the more hopeful scenario, is one in which we rethink our downtowns to have a greater mix of uses. So commercial uses, residential uses, cultural uses, institutional uses, to have um, greater modes of mobility and movement. So additional bike lanes, more open space for people to inhabit as pedestrians, um, transit use that is potentially more flexible, other forms of transit, bike shares, for example. And then also to really build in equity into that so that when we talk about additional housing being brought to the downtown, it's not just market housing, it's non-market housing, it's supportive housing. And then the social services that also help to address vulnerable populations. So we see greater mental health supports, that we see uh, community policing. And so when we're building back our downtowns, instead of revealing both the best and the worst of our downtowns, we're really creating a city that is more vibrant and equitable and resilient in the long term. With no way to put the work-from-home genie back in the bottle, employers, the commercial real estate sector, and governments are all aware that this is a historic and irreversible shift, one that will require an appropriate response based on what we learned. In this scenario, those in charge take the best lessons from pandemics and health crises from the last three centuries and use that information to support our downtowns in the kind of way that reflects this new chapter of urbanism, and really prioritizes human and ecological health to help balance out social inequities. Offices morph to become a kind of mix of co-working spaces and hot desks. Building different versions of housing and civic spaces also becomes a priority to truly make sure we're set at all angles to build back better, as that slogan goes. Does that scenario seem totally unrealistic? Well, the city of Calgary doesn't think so. More on that after this. Long before COVID-19 was on anyone's radar, downtown Calgary was a place of extremes. It was dominated by office buildings and skyscrapers devoted to Alberta's oil and gas industry, with the actual people living a gas-fueled car drive out in the ever-sprawling suburbs. I grew up with the worst of Calgary, and I was living in the very, very far suburbs, like so far that across the street from my house there was a farm. That's James Keller the Globe and Mail's deputy national editor for cities and real estate. He's based out of Calgary today, but he spent his childhood there too, in the 1980s. There's really no reason to come downtown, like right to the downtown core. There's nothing there. That was true when I was growing up. It's true now. That's okay to some degree when things are booming for oil and gas. Calgary's downtown core had a life to it, even if it was centered around workers. But the energy sector is a cyclical industry. So whenever the price of oil collapses, the city's downtown empties out too, and its vibrancy takes a hit. So fall of 2014, the price of oil crashes, and that sets off a recession. You've got tens of thousands of people very quickly out of work. There's bankruptcies, and it ripples across the entire economy. So very quickly, you go from a situation where in the downtown office space, you had a very sort of healthy real estate market, you know, 4 or 5% vacancy, which is pretty normal, and actually things were probably feeling a bit tight as far as office space goes down, down to within a couple of years, you know, it's hitting 20%. When all that happened, Calgary's core lost approximately $16 billion in value. Then by the time the pandemic hit, it reached a vacancy rate of nearly 30% by 2021. Crime and vandalism spiked. And in the midst of COVID uncertainty, 
people were staying away. Calgary knew it was time for something drastic. So with the benefit of all that extra time to think about what a downtown really means and needs, Calgary announced the Greater Downtown Plan in 2021. With the federal, provincial, and municipal levels of government keen to revitalize the city, Calgary planned on spending nearly $1 billion for the next 10 years on everything from incentivizing office tower conversions to building more bike and pedestrian infrastructure and investing in arts and green spaces, too. In fact, there is perhaps no other city in the world that has taken on the challenge of turning outdated office stock into the things that cities need quite as aggressively as Calgary. But there is some back and forth about what exactly it is that they need. Heritage professionals would like to see more historic buildings redeveloped for a mix of residential and commercial use. But commercial real estate professionals, they're wary of purpose-built residential uses, believing that business begets business. They say, if you want that same money flow Calgary got used to in its golden era, you better revitalize the core with that top of mind. So the city is trying out some things. A couple of years ago, they had to officially shift some tax revenue from commercial to residential and asked homeowners to foot a little more of the bill. You can probably imagine how unpopular that was, but as part of this new downtown plan, they've earmarked $80 million to revitalizing Arts Common, the center arts hub in Calgary. They're also planning on allocating $450 million to converting downtown offices for other uses, filling the space, or simply tearing it down. Those who worked on the plan say that the goal is to eventually remove a total of 6 million square feet of downtown office space from the market, in an effort to trim the fat and spur new investment that would bring in new tax revenue, too. It's a massive overhaul, but Calgary is keenly aware that their old downtown isn't coming back, and that they can't stop the tide of progress. But they can try and surf it. I think that in terms of whether it works or not, I mean, these are very expensive, right? It's very difficult to take an office tower, you know, with office floor plans, with plumbing that isn't set up to have bathrooms in every office, like that kind of thing. It's tricky. And I think that when these things come online, when these projects sort of are operating, the questions will be, will people want to live there? The idea of living downtown and having to commute to get groceries and to do the things that you need to do every day, that doesn't seem like a better option. So is Calgary a viable template for the rest of Canada's cores? Samantha Sinella thinks so. She's the Managing Director for Strategic Consulting at Cushman & Wakefield, a global commercial real estate firm and an architect who specializes in urban design and the workplace. Samantha doesn't think office life in general is about to go the way of the dodo, but she does believe its future is decentralization from the downtown core. So right now, our suburban markets are still pretty ordinary. They're pretty flat. So we haven't seen suburban office market growth. However, in the U.S., they have. I do think in the larger cities like Toronto and Vancouver, where we have seen a lot of shift to the suburbs during COVID, people moving out of the city and also being priced out of housing in the inner circles, we may see some suburban office growth out there. If not single sort of purpose office growth, flex office, where, you know, several people are sharing one office. So I could see that kind of shifting the scales a little bit in the future. Samantha says that makes sense. Office workers don't necessarily need to be in the city core for work anymore. So smaller satellite workspaces on the edge of the city and into the suburbs seem both a likely and logical solution. And though she says zoning laws, building laws, and massive costs make converting downtown commercial real estate into housing a potentially tricky play, it's not impossible. 
And here's a fun fact. When you walk past a street sign and you see that it ends with muse instead of, for instance, road or avenue, that word actually has a very specific meaning. Muse are rows of houses that used to be stables. When cars came around, we stopped needing as many horses in our downtown cores. So we replaced stables with much-needed housing. As society progressed, we were able to turn those smelly manure stockpiles we no longer needed into places people wanted to live. So can we do that now to offices too? According to Samantha, we can just look at what Calgary's doing. It can be done. Cities like Calgary are doing it. They're providing grants to commercial office owners to look at conversion to residential. If I had one bit of advice to uh, city planners and city officials is to look at more of a mixed-use scenario where you have office at the bottom and residential on top. I think that makes for a more vibrant community rather than segregating it completely. And not only in major urban centers, but also the outlying areas where you don't see that as much. I think variety adds a lot of character to places. And most importantly, you have to provide that sense of place. You have to provide a place people want to go. So to completely segregate everything doesn't always give you the best overall desired effect. But she says even with all the upheaval city cores may be experiencing right now, focusing on their civic health is an essential part of this transition. A big part of city revenue is from taxes on those buildings and development charges and everything else that fuel those coffers. So it is important that we do keep downtowns vibrant and interesting for that reason. And in areas like Toronto, we have unprecedented waterfront development happening. It's important that we're there to make that revenue model work. We do also have a lot of residential growth in downtown. People are still building condos. That helps to bring a lot of revenue with it as well and vibrancy. If those areas are completely empty, we'll see what we saw in the U.S. post-1970. We have empty downtowns and people moving out to the suburbs, and uh, it was sort of a flight syndrome, and that created a lot of inner city problems. We don't want to have that in Canada. We want to avoid that as much as possible. So to the extent that we can keep those downtowns vibrant, keep residents affordable residential components to these cities, To help that, the better off we'll be. Commercial or residential uses aren't the only options on the menu either. There's also been investment into arts hubs, as well as vertical farming. That is, growing crops in stacked layers indoors. That's starting to see serious global growth in downtown cores and converted commercial buildings alike. It was a $4 billion industry worldwide in 2021, and it's expected to reach $16 billion by 2026. And as Canada's commercial real estate market goes through this transitional phase, we might be ripe to turn our concrete blocks into high-rise farms. This all seems pretty good. I mean, farms in our cities instead of offices? Sounds like a techno-utopia. But if we hope to make meaningful, radical change to our cities, we also need to remember and hold fast to why it is that we're doing this in the first place. Why it is that so many white-collar workers who suddenly found themselves with the ability to make their own call about where they wanted to work, have decided that the old way wasn't working for them. And so we have to think of all the people who live together in these big, messy things we call cities. More on that after this. For some people of color, remote work has had an extra benefit. Remoteness from racism in the workplace. It gives people a break. We've been trying to fix toxic workplaces for a long time now. And if I only have to experience it two times a week instead of five, maybe I'll take that. 
That's Reshma Sajani, speaking to us from her home in New York City. She's the founder of Girls Who Code, a nonprofit organization to create more gender equality in STEM education, which landed her on the Forbes Top 40 Under 40 list. She recently made her case on why hybrid work has to be our future with an article in Time magazine titled, White Men Are More Likely to Want to Return to the Office. She felt compelled to talk about it after a poll emerged that found that 30% of white men wanted to return to the office full-time, followed by 22% for women, both black and white, and 15% of black men. As a woman of color, she says, she understood why white men polled highest. I joke that the temperature, right, is set low uh, to optimize, you know, for the body temperature that they have. They have kegs in ping pong tables and are asked to not speak publicly about the lactation room. The entire workplace in many ways was designed for a man that had a stay-at-home partner. I mean, ask ourselves why the workday is nine to five and the school day is eight to three. It makes absolutely no sense at all. When the pandemic ushered in remote work, it created a lot of headaches, to be sure. But, she says, it also offered her something essential that had been missing. I used to see my kid maybe for 10 minutes a day. And now, you know, I have a two-year-old. And while I'm up here talking to you, like, I can go down and carry him or change his diaper or give him a meal. And so the ability to kind of touch and feel your children. My son has been sick for the past two days. So The fact that I can actually be working from home and be able to care for a sick child, again, provides a level of sanity that I think a lot of parents desperately need. And I just don't think it's working moms. I think it's working dads too. I think they want to take care of their kids. I think especially after the pandemic, it's something that they feels important to them. Now, I may not have kids, but the idea of navigating this pandemic working from home while taking care of a whole human being at the same time breaks my entire brain. The Washington Post backs that up. It found that parents working remotely with kids at home were interrupted on average every three minutes and 24 seconds. But when schools and childcare options opened back up, parents weren't necessarily jumping at the opportunity to get back to the office. Quite the opposite, actually. One poll found that 61% of working parents wanted to work remotely full-time. 37% preferred hybrid, And a whopping 62% of working parents said they'd straight up quit their job if not offered remote work. Less commute time meant more time to drop off and pick up the kids, get dinner started early, be more available for sick days. You know, the crucial opportunity for parents to attain that white whale of more work-life balance. Going back to normal now seems, well, almost cruel. The CDC said that the two subgroups that have the most amount of anxiety and depression are 18 to 25-year-olds, and moms. Moms never break, but they are broken. And so in this moment now where people are just saying, well, return to work five days a week. You know, here's a keg of beer and free drinks. Come on in. It's painful because it doesn't acknowledge what is happening with working moms and what's happening with our children. We have an epidemic. So there are a lot of different kinds of people who prefer some kind of remote or hybrid work situation going forward, not to mention folks with disabilities or mental health issues. Without a pandemic forcing us to work from home for years, we wouldn't have been able to engage in a global experiment of this magnitude. But now that office workers have had a taste of what's possible when it comes to working from home, 
namely that there's rarely a need to be in an office 40 hours a week, we likely aren't willing to go back. So we're facing this historic shift in the way we work, and it ripples down through how individuals spend their time, as well as the future look and feel of our downtowns and everything that comes with that. Building use, infrastructure redesign, the very ecosystem of our cores. The pandemic has been so many things, many of them horrible. But when it comes to a societal shift in our work systems and urban centers, the pandemic has also given us a once in a hundred years opportunity. The question now is what we're going to do with it. On the next episode of City Space, we're looking at retail in the city. E-commerce has exploded, and now it can even put things in our hands in as little as 15 minutes if you live in the heart of a city. Is this the peak of what society has been working toward, or are we now starting to find ourselves trapped in the tyranny of convenience? Plus, what is the actual environmental cost of doing your shopping online versus brick-and-mortar stores? Is one truly better than the other, and how do you know? City Space is produced by Julia Delarentis Johnston. It's written by Julia, Kieran Rana, and me, Adrian Lee. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Evan Miles of Post Office Sound edits our show. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thank you to our guests this episode, Jennifer Barrett, James Keller, Samantha Sinella, and Reshma Sajani for lending us their time to record this show remotely. And thanks, as always, to Danielle Klein for putting up with, well, me. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your favorite city dweller about city space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening, and talk to you soon.